Fuego. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Uh, a lot of news uh, kind of coming out of New York State uh, this week or last couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, these are implications that go well beyond New York. Let's just put it that way. And uh, I'm going to go through them in a little bit. Uh, first, let me, uh, again, welcome you to the program. Uh, I thank you for tuning me in and uh, giving, giving me a chance to weigh in on issues you probably aren't going to get from any other place, including the news that I'm going to give you. You're probably not going to get anywhere else. Um, we are listener-supported radio, and we count on your contributions to both WBAI and WPFW. And I encourage you, if not implore you, to, uh, to make donations to these stations. They, um, they obviously serve a very uh, important function in the communities that they broadcast into. And for me, they give me an opportunity to be heard in, in uh, you know, incredible radio markets like New York City and Washington, D.C., where, like I said, even though these, are, these issues that I'm not going to talk about today are uh, tied directly to New York, they do have national implications. So um, I'll, get, I'll get right into those. I do plan to take some calls later on in the program. I hope that if you do call in that you remember to turn your radio down and, uh, uh, and speak loudly. And, uh, you know, try to – look, I have a tendency sometimes to engage the callers so, uh, so much that um, when I have a caller, um, I can sometimes uh, not – Get have room for any other callers because if, if if the first caller, you know, captures my attention uh, and we get engaged, and I I don't mind that terribly. It's just that I'd, I'd like to give as many people as an oppor an opportunity to speak as possible. So, um, all right, let me let me get right into it. Uh, three news items in particular I'm going to talk about. The first off is uh, something that I'm directly involved in, and that has been the mascot issue in New York State. Um, we just got word that the appeals court um, rejected the appeal of my old high school, Cambridge Central School, good old CCS, um, their appeal to the order from uh, uh, Commissioner Rosa from the New York State Department of Education that, that was basically an order from her that they had to get rid of the, the mascot. And this was based on a fight that I initiated by going to my old high school uh, with a petition, but also with a formal uh, request uh, that they removed the mascot, and I did that three years ago, uh, almost to the day, almost to the day, three years ago. And it um, started the debate at my old high school, a debate that ran on for, for months and ultimately led to a vote in June um, of that same school year, would be uh, 2021, to retire the mascot. Well, it also spanned over uh, a school board election where two new school board members were seated. And so the very next month, they went and they reversed that, uh, that resolution to retire. The difference is the, re the resolution to retire was well thought out. It, it gave a complete list of details on why the, uh, the resolution was drafted. And, um, and the vote was narrow. It was, it was, it was only a... Um, a five-member board, so it was it was like you know three, three to two or something like that uh, to retire, and then it flipped the other way, three to two to unretire it. But when they unretired it, they didn't uh, give any reasons; they just did it. And and of course, part of the reason they were able to do it is because the two people who ran for the school board ran specifically on the mascot issue, and so they felt like they had a referendum on the mascot issue, and they didn't need to give any uh, any explanation. In fact, 
that was their argument that the the these two board members won basically as the referendum on the mascot issue. Um, when once they did had done that, it was clear that this the school board had acted arbitrarily and capriciously. And so a few families that uh, that were backing my efforts and felt strongly about this took uh, filed a petition with the New York State Department of Education, um, uh, charging that the school board had acted uh, improperly. And Dr. Betty Rosa, the school or the uh, uh, New York State Commissioner, um, agreed with them, and she ultimately ordered them to go back to the retirement resolution. Then Cambridge appealed and lost, and then they appealed that loss. Well, today they uh, they are officially lost again, and they basically exhausted all of their um, their legal options, spending way too much money for a poor upstate school district to spend. Um, so now essentially the fight is over. But the thing is that the fight in Cambridge, when it got um, NYSED, the New York State Department of Education involved, it um, it, it, it kind of lit a little bit of a fuse here. And and frankly, I jumped on the order from Rosa to, uh, to against Cambridge and said, well, if you can do it to one, do it to them all. Apparently, that might have been her strategy as well. Uh, probably waiting for a school that was the just the right school to you know to take this issue up. And since these families in Cambridge had filed this petition, uh, it gave her the opportunity with her staff, with the New York State Department of Education, to tackle an issue that hadn't really been tackled for almost twenty years. Look, twenty and back in uh, two thousand one, Commissioner Mills, uh, the commissioner at the time had ordered schools to, uh, to get rid of them and do it at a time that was practical. Well, some did, many didn't, my high school didn't. And that's why I took the fight to Cambridge and it went the way it went. And so as it turns out, the fight in Cambridge led to this statewide ban. Now there's still a couple of schools down in Long Island that are, that are trying to challenge the authority of uh, the, the Board of Regents and the New York State Department of Education to, to do this in the first place. But this fight for Cambridge is done. They, they, they no longer are, will be known as, and in fact, they really haven't been known as for the last year, the Cambridge Indians. And, um, you know, and of course, there's a, there, there are angry folks in every one of these towns. Uh, most people get it, but the loud minority, the vocal minority, doesn't. And, you know, and, and the immediate response that I got from, from some of the folks that, that I work with on this issue was, when is the federal government going to step up? I got to tell you, back during um, the Obama administration, there was talk that the education department, the, the U.S. education department, was was going to do something, that they might issue a stronger statement or they may have you know, played a role in this thing. Now, look, schools had done some things on their own, they, like in New York State. You know, they weren't completely silent for 20 years. They did pass the Dignity for All Students Act, and there has been a big push within school districts and you know and corporations and government, for that matter, to do these diversity, equity, inclusion programs, which really don't address the heart of many of the issues. I mean, it, I, sometimes I feel like these things are kind of feel-good efforts, um, but they aren't necessarily the what we need. And but nothing came out of the Obama administration. In fact, the, the federal government has remained silent on the issue. I mean, even, even to the extent that the national football team in Washington was mired in the same debate. I think Obama took the most <laughs> tepid response possible. I think he said something to the effect, if I had a team, 
And if that team had a name that uh, offended or bothered a significant number of people, I think about changing it. So, you know, there was, you, I don't know if you can put any more hypotheticals in one, into one sentence. And of course, people praised, oh, great, Obama told Washington to change the name. Well, he really didn't. But um, I guess that was Obama speak for supporting a mascot change, I guess. So that's one news item. And, you, and look, it's, it is kind of a big deal. I mean, and, you know, and again, this was a fight that I took to my school. I ratcheted up the pressure once uh, the education department had made a ruling against my school. There wasn't a whole, there wasn't a big campaign. And I've said this on previous shows. I didn't have the Seneca Nation or the Mohawk Nation or the United Nation or the Onondaga Nation. I didn't, I didn't have that, that whole cadre of, of comrades with me, you know, taking on my whole, my school or to raise this, the statewide ban issue with, uh, with um, you know, with the education department. I pretty much, you know, did it with a few families from, from my old, old hometown. And, um, and, and I'm going to tell you, luckily, we had a commissioner that got it. And, and I honestly think her strategy was to use a school like Cambridge to ultimately issue a statewide ban anyway. And, and I think that's why it happened. You know, I, I've kind of called her out in the press a little bit and said, don't just take it out on one. you got to take it on all of them. And, uh, and ultimately, that's exactly what she did. So, in fact, I got to tell you, Betty Rosa called me up after her, uh, her order and, uh, or after the, uh, the order for a, a ban and asked me if I would sit on the Indigenous Mascot Advisory Council, which I did and, and was, uh, was very active on uh, in that regard. So, so that's kind of my, my, my fight with, with the mascot issue in New York State. Uh, I am trying to turn my attention to other states. Pennsylvania is notorious for some of their, um, their, their school mascots, and, and they have some of the worst ones, including, you know, my friend Donna uh, Fan Boyle fighting her uh, the, uh, in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, fighting the Neshaminy School District for using Redskins. And, and, and it, that's always amazes me that the worst of all the names is the one that, <laughs> that was in the nation's capital for their NFL team. And there's always a couple of these schools within these within these states and within these regions that that just can't seem to you know face up to the fact that it's a slur. Uh, and and look, and all of the mascots are bad, but you know using the the most clearly designated racial slur for Native people is um, you know it's 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 kind of absurd. But but there you have it. Yeah, you know, I will say. The unfortunate part, and, and again, I, I mentioned this briefly, but the unfortunate part for my old high school, it's a small school. I mean, they only graduate, you know, 60 or 80 kids a year. It's a small school, which means it's a, it's a poor school for the most part. And the fact that, this, that, that my old high school, that they spent probably close to $100,000 between, you know, consultation and lawyers and, and you know, and, and a host of other things to, to defend this thing. And and now we're probably gonna have to spend that much that much money to get rid of all. And I gotta tell you, this school's got the, these logos everywhere. I mean, they've got them on folding chairs, they've got them on the walls, they've got them on every banner, they've got it on the gym floor, they've got it on the wrestling mats, they've got it painted on the building on all the signage. I mean, it's it's amazing, considering they were told over twenty years ago to phase this out. They didn't. They doubled. They didn't just double down. They tripled down and quadrupled down. They used that mascot more in since the time that Commissioner Mills told them to get rid of it than in all the years prior. 
And so it's, on one hand, it's hard to feel sympathy for the decision makers, but you got to understand that, that the kids are the ones who suffer from this. They're the ones who are going to be deprived of certain, you know, financing and, and that kind of stuff and, you know, and school resources. And, and, and that's what's unfortunate. All right. A little closer to home here, maybe not closer to home for me because previous story was about my old high school, but here in the Seneca Nation, the Seneca Nation and the state of New York agreed to extend the use of the existing gaming compact that's going to expire in a couple of days. Uh, on the 9th, it was, it's slated to, uh, to expire. Uh, that will, will be 21 years that the Seneca Nation has operated gaming, and, and apparently that's after 21 years of, of running a world-class casino, they are still regarded as incompetent to run it without the state involved in their, in, in their gaming. So, um, so Kathy Hochul and uh, the Seneca president agreed, um, I don't know if they had to sign something, but they agreed to, to uh, that the Senecas would operate their gaming facilities under the old compact for a period of time, I think four months or something like that. Now, there's a little bit that's unclear because, as many of you know, I talked about this in, in the past, but the Senecas got forced in the, over the last seven years to pay New York State what is, they still call it revenue sharing, but it's really revenue taking. Uh, they were forced to do it because of, um, two white guys on, our, our, on an arbitration panel said, we know there's no language in the compact that said you had to pay these for these last seven years, but we're, we're going to say that you have to anyway. And so it got forced upon them. It's no longer an agreement. It's not a revenue sharing agreement. It's, it, it's essentially an imposed fee on the Senecas. And they've been paying that for the last seven years. That comes to an end in a couple of days. So if they extend the terms of the agreement, the compact that they agreed to, the question became, well, what about the revenue sharing? Which was essentially almost 50% of the revenue from the gaming, from, from their, their slot machines. I mean, it was 25% of the gross, but by the time you do the math, it comes out to almost, look, the state got $2.2 billion out of the Seneca Nation over 21 years. And the Seneca's got, you know, 2.4 billion. So, and, and that difference, it was really um, the difference that was settled in a dispute. So, I mean, it, it, it's really about 50% of the revenue. So I've heard some buzz that the Senecas may escrow that, that money at that level, essentially 50% of the, of the, the net revenue, 25% of the, of the gross um, during this period of time. But that hasn't really been made clear, and I don't know that the Seneca people know any more than, than I know. But that, you know, this, this kind of information kind of leaks out. Now, I think continuing to operate under the, uh, the previous compact in terms of the reporting issues was fine. I have a problem with, with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, period. I mean, I, I think it is, it is much, it, it reminds me of the Osage. I, I keep, keep talking about it because of the, the film Killers of the Flower Moon, but it reminds me of the federal government designating Native people as incompetent for, to run their own gaming facilities, so they, they, they put the state as their guardians. And, and that's what's existed since, you know, since uh, 1987, I think, or 1988. So, I mean, it's, so you take something like the Seneca Nation that's been operating gaming for all these years, and they're still being forced to have the state involved in their gaming. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's absurd, but, but that's, um, that's what exists at, you know, at, at this point. So, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm against the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act period. Um, because it, the, the main requirement is that the, 
the gaming nations uh, have to enter into a compact with the state that surrounds them. And that I find problematic. Um, New York State has is really tried to play hardball and force the Seneca Nation and the other nations into um, revenue sharing. So it's not really revenue sharing. Like you said, it's revenue taking. Um, and the Interior Department has yet to deal with, with the issue. Uh, they claim under... Again, first native uh, head of the Interior Department, she, Deb Hallen claims that they were going to um, put in a new a rule change that would have leveled the playing field between the the state and uh, the states and, and, and the native territories. But unless you strip away the the you know the gaming co compact requirement, you, there's no level playing field. I mean, if you're forcing native people to have the state in their business while the state is engaged in gaming themselves, I mean, they are your competition on many levels, including everything from sports betting to lotteries, to casinos, to racinos. I mean, so, I mean, they don't, the state isn't required to consult native people with, with over their gaming, but um, in, with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the, the, the federal government using their so-called plenary powers doctrine has forced um, native people to accept states involved in their, in their gaming. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal that they entered into an agreement. Um, I don't know that it's as big a deal as what some people say, because, I mean, when, when the president of the Seneca Nation made the announcement, he said, you know, he made it sound like signing this thing or entering into this agreement was going to secure the gaming facilities that they would not be interrupted. They weren't going to be interrupted anyway. I mean, it didn't matter that this, this gaming compact was expiring because the state refuses to negotiate uh, um, in good faith. It, they weren't going to get shut down anyway. So I think part of the, the BS coming out of Seneca leadership and, uh, and the state of New York is that um, uh, they somehow averted disaster by, by entering into this agreement. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that they averted disaster. And frankly, I think the Seneca Nation should not pay them a dime, and they should drag this thing out as long as possible to see what this rule change that Deb Halland is proposing is uh, what, what effect it's going to have. Because it was supposed to specifically address things like the revenue-sharing clauses that, that most states have been imposing on Native territories. So, so we'll see what happens there. Obviously, um, this is a Seneca gaming issue specifically, but the failure of the Interior Department to provide any, um, you know, any support, really, to Native territories that are being... Um, oppressed by the state state governments. And, and look, it's happening in, in almost all the states. It's not just New York State. I mean, New York State right now uh, has a very aggressive uh, governor. And when I say that, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind people that this is the governor who froze all of the bank accounts of the Seneca Nation to force a half a billion dollar payment to her that she turned around and gave to Terry Pagula, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, for a new stadium. I mean, again... I say you can't make this stuff up, but somebody's making it up because this is the, the world that we live in. So um, that's, uh, that's Kathy Hochul, the beloved governor of the state of New York. And, and, I, and I've got to mention this because, you know, the assumption is always that Native people are treated badly by Republican governors. And, and that may be true, but Kathy Hochul's a Democrat. And many people thought that she was, you know, the, the gentler face to the, to the office than, than her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo. And I'm saying, look, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if they're, if they're Republicans or they're, or they're Democrats. 
Native people experience the same level of racism, of um, you know, white supremacy, and part of it is bound in the, uh, in the system of laws that exist in the United States right now as it relates to Native people. And I'm going to talk about that when I get into the next issue. Another um, news item. Kathy Hochul vetoed the, um, a bill that would have reinstated state recognition and acknowledgement um, of the uh, Montaukett uh, Indian Nation. I hate people who call themselves Indian Nations, but the Montaukett uh, Nation anyway. Um, which lost that recognition in like um, uh, 1910. And it was lost because, get this, <laughs> it's, it's kind of relevant to today. They lost that recognition because they were deemed to no longer be functioning as a governmental unit. Can you imagine New York State or the, anybody in the United States saying that uh, you, you have to pull recognition because there's a failure in government functionality? Well, I got to tell you, the United States is about as dysfunctional as it's ever been. And, that, and it isn't just the Republican Party either. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're nuts, but uh, it's the whole system, the whole system. I mean, the fact that, that Trump could have lost that last election by, you know, what was it, five or seven million votes or something like that? And yet 35 votes separated him from, ta from taking the title home or 35,000? I mean, it's what kind of system is this? You know, and, you know, and, and then, you know, people are encouraged to vote in places that their vote doesn't matter at all. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it, it really is an absurd situation. So the idea that a judge or, or a state legislature or anybody else could strip away the recognition, which I have problems with anyway, but strip away the recognition of, of a very oppressed people because they are not government uh, governing properly. Well, I got to tell you, I don't, somebody ought to strip away the, the recognition of the United States in that case. Uh, it, it's it's an, an, an absurd proposition. But, but again, so here's the power of the governor to veto the recognition of, a, of, a, you know, of, an, of an indigenous people. You know, and, and, and the crazy part is, I mean, I, I don't know what the upside to getting state recognition is. I mean, um, federal recognition, I mean, all of these, these non-native entities that get to decide whether we are real or not is problematic enough. I mean, look, we just come out of this whole pretendians debate over Buffy St. Marie, uh, which is, is still raging on to some extent, I guess. So we got this, this idea of people impersonating native people. And then we have legitimate native people who can't, who, who the state and the federal government says, well, we're not going to recognize you. Well, you know, part of the problem that I have with recognition, state and federal recognition, is recognized as what? You know, so when they say Indian nation, yeah, that's what they're recognizing them as. They're putting their labels on. They're putting their constraints on them. They're, I mean, the, the federal government says a, a recognized tribe is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians that's subordinate to the laws of the United States. Well, the overwhelming and vast majority of the 573-plus um, federally recognized tribes, they never asked for that designation. They never asked to be recognized as subordinate to the United States. In fact, the whole question about subordination is an open question. And it didn't get resolved with the, the 14th Amendment coming out of slavery. When the United States passed their Indian Citizenship Act in 1924, that didn't solve the question. Because 10 years later, they passed another law called the, Re, the Indian Reorganization Act, where they try to suggest 
that um, now they're going to define who Native people are. Because apparently whatever they said in 10 years prior didn't hold up. And look, you can't just impose your citizenship on people. That's, that's kind of uh, it's considered genocide. That's denationalization. So one of the things that I, that I have to say, a lot of the language associated with this governor's veto, and, and in fact, the whole act of pulling the recognition in the first place, it, it gets dubbed as a racist act and, and gets almost, you know, my, my friend Peter Dorico, who was on my show last week, I mean, he wrote of this and said, you're, you're overshadowing the fact that this is classic doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, yes, that also has racial overtones. And in fact, the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples calls doctrines like the doctrine of discovery racist, morally condemnable, so, you know, um, legally invalid. Well, it might be legally invalid as far as the United Nations is concerned, but when you've got the governor that can veto somebody's recognition, or you've got state officials or federal officials that could strip away you know, somebody's acknowledgement, in spite of the fact that there may be, you know, treaties that go back hundreds of years. No, you're going to say, no, we, we don't think that you exist, you exist anymore. I mean, th this is the most, you know, tied to what was considered the termination era, which, where, the, where they felt there was enough assimilation that had imposed, been imposed upon Native people that they don't have to recognize us anymore. And th that termination period was both at the federal level and, and obviously at, at the state level. I mean, you think about 1910, there was probably not a more, a more racist time because you were still living in the aftermath of, uh, of the ending of slavery. I mean, that's, that's when you have these race riots, you, the, you, know, you know, the massacre in Tulsa, you had the murders of the Osage coming in the, in the same period of time. Look, the United States, their history is bound to white supremacy. Their laws, like the doctrine of Christian discovery, which got codified in, in, in 1823. And it gets reaffirmed by folks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, uh, the liberal darling of the Supreme Court in, in 2005. And it gets reaffirmed with, you know, with a governor like Kathy Hochul. This idea is all bound by this religious dogma that get, get, got codified in the U.S. law. And look, and until more Native peoples are willing to speak out and push back against this thing. We need to get rid of it. I mean, it doesn't even matter that at this point, the, even the Vatican and the Pope have, um, have repudiated the doctrine of Christian discovery. Of course, they, they're lying about it. They said, well, we never supported it anyway. We, we, that wasn't our thing. Well, it most certainly was. It came out of your papal bulls. And they said, oh, no, no. That was, that was just governments misinterpreting the, the Vatican papal bulls. There was never a church-sanctioned doctrine of Christian discovery. Well, you only have to read the words to see that there was, and there was no question about that. The churches were, were integrated into the monarchies of, uh, of Europe that initiated this. The monarchies didn't dictate to the church. The church oftentimes dictated to them. So it's absurd to listen to the Vatican today or the Pope today say, well, the doctrine of Christian... See, they repudiate it, but they wouldn't rescind it because by using the words rescinding suggests that they no longer were supporting the doctrine of Christian discovery. And they didn't want to say that. They said, no, we never did. We, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. It was, it was the monarchies that did that. Well, in the meantime, you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that the, 
the, the fee title to land became vested in the discovering nations of Europe under the doctrine of, uh, doctrine of Christian discovery. The Jewish woman from the Supreme Court, the liberal darling of the Supreme Court, cites the doctrine of Christian discovery against the Oneidas in 2005. And now you've got Kathy Hochul asserting the doctrine of Christian discovery again. Like I said, it's amazing to me because they don't have to actually say it. They cite all of the things that, that are drawn from that doctrine that, that a Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, codified into law in the early 1800s. And he uses all that language about our, the, our sovereignty, be, uh, sovereignty necessarily being diminished upon discovery. And, and he talks about the extravagant pretension of equating discovery with conquest, like uh, pretending that, that's, that those things are the same thing. And, and also reducing any rights that Native people had as the original inhabitants here. Oh, no, they, they're like the animals. They just have a right to live there. They're like the deer, the rabbits. They don't, they don't own the land. They just have a kind of a, a right, you know, of occupancy. And even that was, was never honored when you consider the, the removal periods. So the level of, of um, authoritarian rule that the United States adopted in, re in relationship to Native people specifically, obviously slavery was, was legal and all that other stuff, but even as they were making rulings to, or, or passing laws to outlaw slavery or you know, rulings in the Supreme Court in the 50s, Brown versus the Board of Education, you still had some of the most racist and doctrine of Christian discovery bound laws and rulings coming out of the Supreme Court still today, still today. This idea that, that somewhere the Congress was granted, which is not in the Constitution, this supreme authority to regulate the meets and bounds of Native people, of Native sovereignty, that's, that's not in the Constitution. That's not rule of law. That's authoritarian rule. And that all comes from the Doctrine of Christian Discovery and, uh, and some of the legal dicta penned by uh, Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall from 1823 to, uh, to 1830. And we're still living with the effects of that today. The Montucket are, are living with it today. And so I think Kathy Hogle said, go ahead and try it again. Try to pass something again. Yeah, you, you, still, you still haven't convinced me that you're a, that you're a functioning government. So anybody from the United States that could condemn somebody else's governing system as being, um, you know, uh, dysfunctional is, is amazing to me, is amazing to me. All right. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let me take a break. Um, uh, well, kind of take a break. I'm just going to say I'm John Gain. This is Resistance, Resistance Radio, and uh, it is a pleasure to be on your airwaves in both New York City on WBAI and in Washington, D.C. On, on WPFW. Uh, we are listener-supported radio, so we need your support. We, I ask that you go to their pledge lines. I'll even, I'll even rattle them off here. If you're in New York listening on WBAI, please do call 212-209-2950 and make a donation. And do it in the name of this radio program. Do it in the name of this program. And that money goes directly to the operations of WBAI. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. If you're in Washington, D.C., Please go to their pledge line, 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go on their uh, website, which is wpfwfm.org. You can 
type in slash donate or just follow the tabs to donate and support these radio stations. Thank them for me, for, for providing space on their airways for a native voice. Because you're not going to hear this stuff anywhere else. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. None of this stuff. Uh, look, even even the big the mascot debate that, that you know rages in, you know, on Long Island and, and across the state, the only time it becomes newsworthy is when those schools bitch about it. There's, there isn't the proper coverage that comes from the Native perspective uh, on, on this issue. It, it, there just isn't. And if you don't have a station like WBAI or WPFW that allows me to come on to talk about these issues, you're not going to hear it. Not, you're not going to hear the Native perspective. You're going to hear something watered down. Oh, yeah, there's, there's other Native news services that, that, that also oftentimes can be far too generic on these issues. So I'm grateful to these two stations in Washington and, and in New York for allowing me to come on their airwaves and do this. So, um, look, I do want to take uh, take calls, so let me uh, go ahead and I'll throw the number out there a few times, and Reggie can pipe in when, when anybody has uh, you know, called in. It's 212-209-2877. Look, I hope somebody in Washington catches the show uh, as it streams from New York, so so even the, my Washington listeners would, would uh, call in. So, uh, so, again, the number is 212-209-2877. Uh, if you're you, perhaps you're watching this on Facebook live stream, I'm streaming the show on Facebook. Um, this will go up as a podcast as well. But if you're listening to us live on Facebook um, there, you see, I've got my uh, my Caucasians T-shirt on. Reg, in case you don't know it, I've got my my Caucasian shirt on today. I figured it's, it's time for me to wear a mascot shirt, too. So, um, uh, again, the number is 212-209-2877. That's the number to call to uh, look. I, I presented three news items today. There are other issues. Uh, look, I heard the president of the United States uh, said that he supports the, the Haudenosaunee nationals playing in the Olympics. Again, won't recognize our sovereignty. He wants the Olympics to make an exception to allow us to play lacrosse in the Olympics in the next Olympics. Well, if you weren't oppressing our people and, you, and refusing to recognize our sovereignty, then... You, there wouldn't have to be an exception. We could have an Olympic committee. We would meet those standards that the uh, that the uh, some of these international uh, sports associations have. But as long as you're going to continue continue to treat us as wards of the state, so you, the president of the United States, are going to tell the Olympic co- committee, the the Olympics, to make an exception. I, you know, I, I again, I feel like it's it's lip service. It's not even real pandering because. Um, so, I mean, so we can talk about that as well. Um, uh, we we still see some uh, the embattled Buffy Saint Marie uh, in in the news. Apparently, the uh, Piapot uh, chief uh, Cree chief up in Saskatchewan uh, has basically called on, on on Buffy. Yeah, go ahead and take a DNA test. If look, if you're related to your to your white parents' uh, offspring, then clearly you've been lying about who about your your native ancestry. So. And of course, you know we don't anticipate that's going to happen either. So, but um, look, we got a number of issues that I've presented over the last few weeks. Uh, my my good friend Peter Dorico was on. In fact, I even reposted uh, a show the first time Peter was on my show back when when Johnny was co-hosting with me, and uh, that was that was from like five years ago. And look, if you catch that audio, you're going to hear stuff that is still consistent, still holds up today. Nothing is is dated. Simply because, you know, time has passed on. This is, I mean, 
the thing that I will, uh, that I pride myself in is, is consistency. There's not, there's hardly an issue. In fact, I can't think of a single issue that I've had to backtrack on because I found out later that, uh, you know, that my position might've been wrong on a certain subject. No, not at all. Look, I will say that um, I was among those people who were duped by Buffy St. Marie and I had her on my program as a matter of fact. Um, but I don't feel like that I, that I had had a wrong position. I just, you know, we didn't, we didn't know. I mean, now we do. So um, again, the number to call in is 212-209-2877. If you call in, I'm going to ask you your name and where you're from, just in case you're from DC or, you know, uh, or Florida or wherever else. Maybe you're, you're calling because you're catching me on Facebook. Um, I ask that you turn your radio down and, uh, and speak as loudly and, and clearly as you can, because sometimes those radio connections or those phone connections are not great. Ray, uh, Reg, do we have anybody uh, calling in yet? Uh, not yet, okay. uh, but I will get the calls ready as soon as they come in. All right, all right. Uh, you know, you, you never know because look, sometimes I can hit a subject and the phone lines just light up. Last week, uh, there, there was a little bit, a little sparse. In fact, on the previous show, it seemed like the the callers had dropped off a little bit. And I look, I know, I know people have things to do, and I I want to give the opportunity. Um, for for listeners to to weigh in and 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 that's why you know look originally uh, my show was a talkback show that's it's, it's absolutely what it was um, uh, initially I, I remember um, when Mario Murillo told me he said uh, look try to stay on topic don't deviate too much from from whatever your topic is your subject matter is of the day and I said you know what Mario and just like that John all right four, uh, five callers up. And ready to go. All right. Uh, again, that number, just so, so when we go through these, 212-209-2877. We'll try to get through as many as we can. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful when people call in. But look, as I told Mario back in the day, if somebody wants to call in, I'm willing to take on any subject they want to they hit me with. So, uh, so we'll, let's go to it. Caller, you're up first. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, how you doing? My name is Sean. I'm from Queens. Hey, Sean. Thanks for calling in. Hey, man. Um, I, I actually had two issues I wanted to talk about, and they're two completely different issues. So if I may, my first issue is, um, is it is it, maybe you have discussed it, I, I didn't hear it in the past, but is it, uh, is it a legitimate uh, way for Native Americans to get reparations for what happened and what's going on? <coughs> And the second issue is, do you think uh, U.S.'s stance on the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is based on racism and, and ethnocentrism? Those are my two issues. If you could All right. I'll, well, any, first, off, first off, there is no vehicle for reparations. Um, um, even land claims, they had a, a land claims commission set up years ago, and it was a debacle. I mean, it, it, was, I mean, it was pathetic. Uh, there have never been any proper or legitimate um, settlements for land claims. I mean, they, they've all really just screwed Native people. There was, a, there was a case called the Cabell suit, a class action suit against the United States, the Interior Department, for, for misappropriating, for losing, for mismanaging billions of dollars of Native assets. By some estimates, it was between 40 and $100 billion dollars. The Obama administration settled it for pennies on the dollar. They, they settled it for $4 billion. And a lion's share of that money 
went to buying back land that was illegally sold. So much of that money didn't even go, go to Native people. So, no, even when you can clearly document being defrauded out of uranium mining or coal mining, the, the settlements usually pale by uh, comparison to what they should be. And now we're talking about residential schools. And on the Canadian side, they did what they call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was pretty pathetic there, too. Um, and they tried to get out of the issue by offering, by sending checks to people. So my concern is that when we talk about reconciliation or truth and reconciliation on the U.S. side, dealing with the, the residential schools, where tens of thousands of children in all likelihood died in these schools, they're going to, somebody's going to come up with, with a number and they're going to send checks out and they're going to, and, and you know, look, because of the, the, the poverty that exists in native territories, many native people are going to be, you know, happy to receive those checks, but it doesn't, it doesn't address the issue. I pro, I promote restoration, not, not reconciliation. I want our autonomy to be recognized. The very thing that Kathy Hochul just, just vetoed for the Montaukett. I want, I want our land and I want our autonomy to be restored. That's, that's what I want. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's reparations enough. I mean, I know we could assign dollar values to it, but you know what? That means that, you know, one generation, you know, uh, will, will see change, but if nothing changes from a policy standpoint, that's a problem. Look, I think there's, there's very little question. I mean, on, this, uh, on this anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, for instance, so when you ask me about China, I can look at the United States' view on how they look at anybody that's dramatically different from them. Note, they didn't drop an atomic bomb on the Germans. Why? <laughs> because the United States has, has strong European ancestry. But they had no problem dropping it on a small island nation of Japan. And to be clear, on this, the anniversary of bombing of Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor was a naval base on, uh, in, a, in a territory that the United States was illegally occupying. The United States didn't get bombed. Their assets got bombed, but they were illegally occupying the Hawaiian kingdom at the time. So, and I'm not justifying, you know, Japan's actions. I would, I would love to know that perspective, but that's not what anybody's going to learn. You know, I, I just heard recently people talk about well, if we don't um, um, document history, it'll be lost. History already is lost. It's in the past. It already happened. And everybody's perspective on history is different. There's no way that anybody can say, well, this is the true history. Because everything is going to be filtered through the lens of the, of, of the beholder, so to speak. So, you know, look, we don't know what was, uh, what was the mindset of, of, of Germans or, or Japanese. We can, we can count them as, you know, as, as these horrendous acts that they may have committed, bombing Pearl Harbor or, or the Jewish Holocaust or, or, or whatever. But there were other things that led up to that. And oftentimes it, it, there were injustices that, that led people to become that kind of radical, that uh, go through that kind of extreme radicalization. That's what we see in the Middle East today. So, um, yeah, I, I think you can see uh, um, a lot of this, uh, this, this ethnic view or white supremacy view, American exceptionalism. That's the, I call that the euphemism for white supremacy. So um, I, that's my thoughts on that. Uh, let's try to go to another caller. Uh, I thanks, thanks for those questions. I appreciate it. Uh, Reggie, who we got next? Uh, what do we got? Yeah, we got people. We got people. All right, caller, you're up next. What's your name? Where are you calling you? from? Hi, John. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm John also, and uh, I'm in a uh, Zionist enclave up in the Bronx. <laughs> and uh, I really enjoy your show. Not that I'm being entertained, but it is certainly an unfiltered and really focused analysis of the misdeeds of this country and this government. And I particularly like your analysis of the local government in this state. And you offer a bunch of things that is not that are not reported or examined on any news source. And I really appreciate it. And uh, I am glad that you have a voice that you can express this stuff because your people have been aggrieved in such a unique and horrific way. And I don't support it in any way whatsoever. Well, and, and Kathy Hochul's actions uh, with his veto and um, and her, her actions towards the Seneca demonstrate that those uh, we're still being aggrieved. We're, we are still being uh, you know, treated in um, in, a, in a horrendous way, and it's and it's based on the historical past, you know. And I don't know how does she get such good press. She comes to the office as an appointment from a crook, uh, uh, Cuomo over there, and. Uh, and, and the way you point out that her husband is, a, you know, he's wealthy and he's being, you know, he's, he's, he's dipping in the public trough left and right. Well, he, he, was, he was a former U.S. prosecutor. He worked for the, the Seneca Nation's biggest uh, um, competition in terms of uh, a private company beyond the state, which was Delaware North. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing the conflicts of interest that exist uh, in, with, with these people. And, and you're right. Uh, for some reason, she gets this great press, and, and I don't know if it's because, you know, it's, it's such a democratically leaning state that uh, they look the other way. They, they look the other way plenty of, of, with, uh, with Andrew Cuomo, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and maybe just be, maybe, maybe because she's a woman, she's getting, you know, a, a little bit of a, a, a gentler treatment. I don't know. I, I don't, don't want to claim sexism, certainly considering how, how badly women have been treated in, in this uh, society. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it either. So I appreciate the call, John. I, 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 do, I really do appreciate it. And thanks, uh, thanks for your good words. I, let me see if we can get, to get a couple more callers in. Caller, you're up next. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Wendy from Springfield, New Jersey. Well, thanks um, for calling. I appreciate I it. I read. Oh, I'm, I really enjoy your program. I learned so much, and I'm reading uh, to, to catch up on, you know, it'll take me another 50 years to catch up on, on all the reading I need to do. Um, but I read Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham, and I have not seen the movie yet, but everything I've heard about it is told from the wrong point of view. Molly and her family are the center. It's Molly's perspective. That's a movie needs to be made from. And anyone who's doing an independent film uh, who's Osage and is using the Osage perspective, I'm willing to donate money to. Because once I heard that the, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and, you know, Martin Scorsese, I said, yeah, they're going to make it about the white man, right? Now, this is the spouse who killed, who's killing the family that he was a part of, right? So how could he possibly be? Uh, the central character, and the, I mean, this doesn't make any sense as a story. Well, and, and, and it, since you read the book, I mean, you also realize that I thought David Grant, even though, again, a non-native perspective on uh, even with the book, at, at least he he expanded the 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 frame a little bit. It wasn't just about the ones that Burkhart and uh, and Hale were involved in killing. He talked about the hundreds of murders that took place, and and unfortunately, the very thing that um, 
that they claimed they weren't going to do was, was make this a story about the FBI, they limited this film based solely on the very people that the FBI was investigating because they weren't, they ignored the rest. And I thought David Grant, you know, some people said the, the, the movie tracks the book very closely. I didn't think so at all. When you do see the film, maybe at some point you'll call me back in the future and you'll, you'll let me know what you're, yeah, if you do I, see the I film. Will. And it's funny because I had just read the book about the FBI um, by um, Beverly Gage, I think her name is, mm-hmm. and it's called uh, G-Man. So when I read this and the FBI, it's like Mississippi burning. Like they're trying to say, that the FBI saved people in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and they undercovered stuff. You know, this is not even, you know, not even halfway true. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, the FBI has never been on anybody's side, and you're right. But I know that the film could not tell the whole story, but they, at least the part that they did tell, they needed to tell it right. And when I see it, I'll call you back. Well, I, I, I appreciate that call. Thanks, thanks for this call, uh, and I look forward to you, you calling back in. Because, look, I... You know, I, I have my perspective on it, and but I, I, I'm always willing to have that conversation with people. And I think, you know, some people praise the movie, and, and I'm glad the film got made because at least the story is being told somewhat. But, uh, but I agree with you completely that they should not have tried to give, you know, one of the murderers a conscience um, uh, intentionally and try to make it look like he was that he was the one who was struggling so much with the with with all of this when he was the one of the guy, one of the ones committing the murder so yeah absolutely all right let's see if we can get uh, maybe at least a, maybe another caller too we'll see what we can get in here caller you're up next what's your name where you're calling from hi john my name's gordon i'm calling from out in montauk all right. How are you? hey gordon thanks for calling good uh, just for the listeners to know i also grew up in the Matinecock nation which is on the western end of long island and they've got uh, their trademark out there. It's in the Zion Cemetery out there. It says, here lies the last of the Matinecock. But yet, they would be there every year. Now, here's uh, the Pearl Harbor Day. But yet, the first, pre- first, first peoples, American Indians, would be dancing with their headdress and full regalia at the Memorial Day Parade every year. And they were supposed to be extinct also. And I just wanted to, on Thanksgiving, it just passed, I just wanted to, uh, I sent out this message to my friends, if I can, I made this up, and it says, uh, I think often how much we need our first peoples, the American Indians, respect for people, the earth, and all living creatures. How much further on we would all be if we had only sat and listened. Well, and you know, some of the you know the brightest minds, um, you know, certainly in in uh, in this in the United States or in the area, all come to the same conclusion that if you don't give more credence to the relationship that Indigenous people have had with the planet, we're we're never going to um, we're never going to survive the the effects of uh, of climate change. And you know, David Suzuki. Uh, uh, um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I mean, these guys are all, they've all made full acknowledgments about that it's only the people who are tied closer to the land who have either treated it properly, fairly, uh, respectfully, and, uh, and, and it's only through, you know, through the culture of indigenous people that, uh, that the answers come from. So, uh, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your sentiment. I appreciate your, your call. John? Yes. John, may May I also remind you, I called in when the Shinnecock Nation out here on the East End had their movie Conscious Point, stopping the desecration of their cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Is it true that this new Buffalo Stadium that 
Kathy Hochul's husband is one of the subcontractors, maybe a food vendor or something, that they're building this stadium on traditional native burial grounds? Well, they, they don't even really know. And because they, she vetoed um, one of the bills that would have, uh, would have uh, caused additional scrutiny on things like burial sites and uh, repatriation of, uh, you know, of bones and that kind of stuff. Uh, there's no question that that area was considered part of what was what was called Buffalo Creek um, uh, territory. So, yeah, and it's a massive, you know, um, uh, footprint. And of course, even the original stadium never had proper, you know, any any kind of uh, you know proper scrutiny to to archaeological you know um, uh, value and that kind of stuff. So, um, it's it's hard to say, uh, and I I don't know. There, this, you, there's almost no place that you can step on in, uh, in the United States that uh, didn't have some native presence to it. So whether you know, it was specifically a burial ground or not, you know, there's, you know, there are people who talk about the curse of the, the Buffalo Bills having never won a Super Bowl. I don't know. I don't necessarily buy into all of that. But at the same time, you know, it's hard for me to feel bad for a team that, uh, you know, that has shown promise over the years and has always fall, fallen flat when you consider – you know the the history of the ownership and uh, and the interaction with, with native people, especially this one in between Kathy Hochul and you know um, Terry Pagula. I mean, there's there's like a constant struggle uh, from a, from an indigenous standpoint. So so I don't I, I don't know John, for sure. A, and just a final thought, John. Just as a previous caller, I think it was John asking about this. The New York State Legislature uh, disgraced. Uh, Convicted head of the Assembly, Sheldon Silver, convicted head of the Senate, uh, Dean Scalas, uh, disgraced Cuomo, disgraced uh, all these other governors resigned. The New York State Legislature is ranked 50th, dead last by New York University Brandon School of Political Science as the most dysfunctional legislative body in America. And can you That's imagine pulling somebody's recognition or refusing to recognize somebody because you think their functionality of, of, of a native government is, is problematic. It's, it's incredible. It's hypocrisy <laughs> in its worst way. Look, I, I want to thank you for the calling, uh, for calling Gordon. I, I appreciate it. Uh, and I want to thank the rest of you college for calling in. It, uh, again, great to get some feedback from you. Um, great response, great questions. And, and I do appreciate it. Uh, you know, keep posted. I know we're, we're coming in the next couple of weeks. I think I'm preempted in D.C. Uh, one week and preempted in, uh, in New York on the other. But, uh, look, I'm doing something every week. Look for my stuff on Facebook. Look for my stuff on a podcast. Resistance Radio is a, is a weekly podcast as well as a radio show. And, uh, John, I just wanted to inform you, in case you didn't know about this, that uh, the investigative journalist uh, Greg Palace is in the process of releasing – a documentary that is called uh, Until They Kill Them, 100 Crucial Seconds of a Story Buried. And that is related to the so uh, Osage people as well. Yeah, he's been investigating that for a while, so I know that he's, yeah. he's got a project coming out. I look forward to that. Maybe I'll... Maybe I can uh, uh, ring him up. I think I had him on the show once before, so maybe I'll. Uh, you did. Maybe I'll, you I'll, did. I'll, I'll pull. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can pull some strings and get him on a, on the program. Okay. All right. Thanks, Reggie. Just wanted to share. Yeah. All no right. problem. All right, folks. We'll see you next week. Uh, uh, in the meantime, enjoy your your holiday season as best you can, in spite of world news. And we'll see you next time. Yahweh. <laughs>